This is SPE Talks Tech, HSE and COVID-19. On April 7th, 2020, SPE went live for the first time on LinkedIn with a panel discussing the impact of the global pandemic on upstream oil and gas. COVID-19 has brought much of the world to a grinding halt and to date has left more than half of the world's population restricting their movements to only within their own homes. Our panel met an engaged audience with highly informed expertise that we hope helps our listeners navigate the COVID-19 and oil crisis. So with that introduction, let's hand it over to SPE Technical Director of HSC and Sustainability, Joanna Dunlop. This is the first. It's the first SPE uh, live cast, and I'm proud that the health, safety, environment and sustainability uh, discipline is the first discipline um, that's participating in this new approach to engaging with our members and engaging uh, beyond the We've got seven technical disciplines uh, in the uh, in the SPE, and I think we're the only professional association um, that um, welcomes health, safety, environment, and sustainability professionals, along with drilling competitions and and more core technical disciplines. And we've got some of the finest HSES dis, uh, professionals in the industry are members of of the SPE. And it's a comfort to me to know that many of you are are listening in. Um, and uh, really delighted to be with you um, here today. It's exciting because it's a first live cast at the same time. Um, it's extremely sober. We're in the middle of a huge crisis. Um, we've been in crisis mode uh, in the industry since the middle of uh, January because of the international nature of the of the industry. Sometimes we're ahead of the curve and we were ahead of the curve in many, many countries. And our speakers today um, are going to share some insight to what their companies have been doing to manage this crisis, protect their people, and also to protect their their operations. So welcome, everybody. Um, we're in for about 40 minutes of, of listening to our uh, wonderful panelists um, and having some Q&A. So don't forget to send in your questions. We look forward to lots of interaction with you. Um, so I'd like to introduce you to your four panelists today. Um, we start with Francesca Viviani, who's the Director of Public Health for International SOS. Um, Francesca is also serving on the IOGP and IPCA Joint Health Committee. And always delighted to have you, uh, Francesca, with us at, at, at SPE. We always enjoy uh, your, uh, your presentations. Uh, Francesca has been working in crisis management for over 15 years and is directing the public health programming for international SOS, interfacing with our industry, supporting the oil and gas industry, but also many other um, industries. She's also worked with NGOs and, and UN agencies, so incredible perspectives that she's able to bring to us. Um, after Francesca, we're going to hear from Dr. Frederick Gervel from Equinor. Hi, Frederick. Good to see you. Uh, Frederick's a specialist in occupational medicine. He's the leading advisor for medical services, also on the Joint Health Committee of IOGP and IPCA, and has been on the front line basically since the middle of January, uh, managing the COVID crisis um, for Equinor and also supporting the industry through the Joint Health Committee. We're then going to hear from Mark, Mark Scanlon, who is leading the HSE practice. Hi, Mark, at the Energy Institute. 
working collaboratively with a lot of international stakeholders, uh, leading up team project managers, supporting our industry, but also supporting renewables and hydrogen, carbon capital, so quite a range of perspectives there. Uh, looking forward to hearing from you, uh, Mark, and the work that you've been doing uh, under very stressful circumstances on creating COVID-specific bow ties. Um, and then hear from Rium Johnson. Rium is the, hi Rium, good to see you. Uh, Rium is the, is the chief HSE officer for, for NOV, a service company. Um, she started at their next generation program and very quickly established herself, moved over into corporate engineering and worked on their tier four uh, emissions management program and started creating NOV Ventures. Uh, she moved over to R&D, um, built the, the flagship technical center, was then named as VP of R&D uh, technical center for NOV. Um, and then in 2019 came into her HSE role. And it's always wonderful to have people come into these roles who come from operations and R&D backgrounds because you bring in fresh eyes uh, mm -hmm. to us, you know, the, tech, the geeks of the HSES uh, okay. function. Um, and it's great to have to have that mix of perspectives. And I know already in, in your six months, uh, you've been you've made your mark and, and are very supportive uh, of the function. So with no further ado, I'd like to um, pass, uh, pass the camera and the mic over to Francesca. Um, over to you. Thanks, Joanna. And uh, thanks, SPE, for organizing this uh, live event. And welcome to you all. I think Joanna uh, say is a first for uh, everybody. It's a first for me also to do something like this. I would like to start providing just uh, some general context for all of us on uh, what we are talking about. Uh, as you know, towards the end of December uh, 2019, authorities in Wuhan, in Hubei province, announced a cluster of cases of pneumonia associated with a wholesale market. The virus was subsequently identified as a new virus, never circulated in uh, human people before, and the virus was called SARS-CoV-2. The disease associated with this virus is called COVID-19. Uh, on the 30th of January 2020, the WHO declared the spread and the outbreak of COVID-19 a public health emergency of international con um, concern. This is a, a part of international regulations for improving health of everybody. At the time of the declaration, there were less than 8,000 cases confirmed worldwide and 19 countries. As Michael was reminding us at the beginning, we are now around almost a million four hundred and eight one hundred. 84 countries uh, are affected, this in uh, less than four months. Uh, what did the oil and gas sector uh, did? Well, the, the oil and gas sector, as Joanna was mentioning, reacted extremely promptly. Uh, they started to organize themselves even before the public health emergency was, uh, was declared. And for international assessment, we entered immediately, we activated our business continuity plan. So why the sector uh, reacted so promptly and differently from others? Well, I think that the main priority for the sector is and will remain the health and safety and well-being of employees, their families, as well as the community where the sector operates. This is really important because this has created some structure and places that uh, the, um, the sector can use. Firstly, the sector has measures in place for the control of infectious disease transmission. 
definition, especially inside the fence, being this uh, platform or onshore uh, location. What happened with the COVID-19 was that these measures were constantly updated by the company to reflect the daily knowledge we gain on this uh, COVID-19. And I know that Frederick will give us a fantastic example on the importance of this uh, aspect. Secondly, another priority, another um, specialty was um, uh, was the fact that uh, we learned during the Ebola outbreak in 2014-2015 uh, how a health event that is not promptly managed can become a crisis of a much bigger scale. At the time of the Ebola outbreak, I was doing some research about how outbreak preparation and collaboration between multiple stakeholders. And what we identified was that a key component of the business continuity response was collaboration and partnership. Uh, companies might have collaborated with different stakeholders and with different groups. And we found out that the same strategy happened with the COVID-19. All the companies activated the crisis management time immediately. They transferred lessons learned from certain countries that were affected at the beginning, especially China Questions. They shared PPE where they were needed, not they were stocked. So when they were needed in China, these were moved and then they moved to, to Europe and now eventually to the States. And finally, they share best practice among all the operators. Uh, the health committee of IOGP, PIECA, convened for the first time already in January and we started to share experience among not only the companies but the whole sector. This is important, this is essential and gave a very good way for the sector to respond to this. Especially if we consider that on 11 of March 2020, uh, WHO considered the spread of COVID-19 a pandemic. Nothing happened or changed with the virus. What happened was that suddenly everybody and every country was affected. I suppose all of you have become now very familiar with the epidemiological curves that describe the spread of the virus, as well as how different measures can impact and alter this type of shape. Well, these are the same curves together with scenarios that the company use for making decision in, as part of their business continuity plan. During the initial growth uh, of the of the transmission when the cases were still uh, fewer company put in place different uh, control measures or prevention barriers um, and these were about reducing the risk of uh, infection in the, in the workplace during the rapid growth phase when the things started to go very wrong as they because of the lockdown or because of a very precautionary approach, company decided to have a work from home policy and they started to support with a wellness program and well-being and psychosocial support and stress. Let's re remind that also most company remained operational uh, and are still operational. So we still have people working on uh, oil field. In this case, the measures became much stricter. What we are seeing now, uh, either in countries that are on the declining phase or countries that are preparing for a return to a new normal, the priority and the measures are changing. Companies put in place the same measures that they had at the beginning when the uh, growth of the epidemic, as, as well as new things that we are developing as we go along. We, there is an incre increasing talk of masks or rapid testing, all things that are coming out now that may not have been available in the past. What is important is that we know that nothing functions in isolations and there is no silver bullet. So collaboration and discussion and events like these are fundamental for the sector to move on. And these were my initial remarks. Thanks. Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Francesca and 
reminding us also that most companies are still operational um, and that we're learning every day. So there is this new normal and new measures coming in, but there's no there's no silver bullet. So let's pass over now to um, to Frederick and hear how Equinor is managing the COVID crisis. Frederick, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Yes, and thank you and thank Michael uh, for uh, having SP arrange this. It's uh, very interesting to uh, participate. Um, jo um, Francesca mentioned collaboration and uh, I'd just start, like to start off by saying that we have a long-standing relationship with ISOS and terrific collaboration with uh, ISOS, uh, especially for this event. Uh, I wouldn't call it an incident, it's, an, uh, it's too big a scale. Um, great support from ISOS and we've also really appreciated our collaboration and support from our peers. Um, sharing is uh, very important here and uh, we are trying to share what we can and receiving great support from our colleagues in the other oil and gas operators. Um, Jason, could you show my screen, please? I'm going to talk a little bit about how Equinor has uh, approached COVID in an offshore setting. We've managed so far to keep all our installations operational. It's been challenging and we have learned a lot. Um, for those of you who don't know Equinor, we are uh, a Norwegian oil and gas company with a global presence, presence in all regions of the world. We operate mainly on the Norwegian continental shelf, but also um, in the UK sector in Europe, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and Brazil. And we have exploration activities uh, in many other locations. Let's see. There we go. Um, just to start off, uh, COVID-19 is for us doctors, it's novel, yes, but it's, it's not new, it's not unknown. Managing infectious disease offshore is something we've been doing for 40 years. Uh, we have a lot of experience in keeping our people healthy and safe offshore. And for COVID-19, we use the same principles as we have for all other infectious diseases. We prevent the infection from coming offshore. When it does, we contain it and medevac our afflicted staff safely. A few important principles that we have used for this one is uh, we've developed a bow tie model for the organization. We're working very hard on social distancing. I'll uh, get into that later. We are also quite strict on testing. We test a lot um, and we quarantine and sanitize when we have a case. Um, I'm going to start by showing a case study from 2018 and this wasn't COVID. This was a virus called sapovirus, which uh, is a relative of norovirus. It causes gastroenteritis, mainly diarrhea. And this happened on one of our larger installations during turnaround. Uh, we had 462 people offshore at the time. Um, the index event was a person vomiting and then failing to self-quarantine in the pu public toilet uh, at May 12th. And then four days later, we had 15 cases of people puking and having diarrhea in their cabins. So this was quickly identified as an outbreak and containment measures were introduced. Basically isolate, start cleaning. Uh, and we have a whole set of procedures that we use for common areas. Everything was shut down um, and cleaning frequency increased. So we started testing for the virus. Uh, the normal test procedure in Norway goes only for norovirus, so we missed the diagnosis. 
We didn't identify the agent until May 20, uh, when we had a new resurgence of the outbreak, up to 17 cases in one day. Uh, then we identified it was SOPA virus, and that knowledge is really important because it tells you that for SOPA virus, you actually need to isolate them for 48 hours instead of just 24 with norovirus. Um, and the incubation time is longer as well. So we use that knowledge to strengthen our quarantine and containment measures and manage to break the outbreak over the next week. Uh, the main factor actually in this outbreak was an underreporting of symptoms. This was during turnaround where you have a lot of people, uh, contractors and subcontractors offshore, who will lose their income if they don't show up to work and they didn't report symptoms and they failed to self-isolate. And that led to a delay in or pro prolongation of turnaround by three days, which was a considerable impact for us. So by June 8th, we were quite sure that this outbreak was over and we ended our containment measures. So the simple measures that we used here, we also use for COVID. Uh, Joanna asked me, how does one operate offshore in the time of COVID? Well, the answer is at a distance. We practice strict social distancing. Basically, all the measures that we introduced for managing SAPO virus, we are, we are now constantly uh, they are active on all our installations. Gyms and common rooms are all closed. People basically work, eat, and go to their cabins. We have staggered meal times to increase distance, as you can see in this picture. We don't have any buffets. All meals are served or plastic wrapped. All meetings are conducted with social distancing or by video. We disinfect everything several times per day. And people are very well aware that if they have symptoms, they self-isolate and then call the medic instead of showing up. We have reduced our manning to operational levels. We have delayed a lot of non-critical maintenance. And the helicopter companies with whom we collaborate uh, quite well or excellently um, have reduced their flights to 12 passengers from the normal 18, just to be able to maintain distancing in the helicopter as well. This is all to reduce the number of close contacts if there is a case and also reduce the possibilities of transmission. So, if we have a case offshore, we divide it into high probability, medium probability, or low probability. For the high uh, probability, we isolate, we test, we quarantine all close contacts. For the medium probabilities, we isolate and test, but we ask the close contacts to self-monitor. And for the low probabilities, the common colds, uh, simple allergies, um, that we isolate them until they're well plus one day. Uh, we don't test them, but we do contact tracing in case the situation develops. So far on the Norwegian continental shelf, we have tested 19 people. It was, uh, I forgot to update this slide. Uh, we have had only one case positive. And the prevalence in Norway, fortunately, is quite low. Um, testing is important because it ensures that we can identify a case and medevac only the case that we need to medevac. It also prevents disruption to our operations. Having 20 people in quarantine is difficult um, and it reduces fear. Fear is really important here because you need your employees need to feel safe when they're offshore. They they can't have their focus on being afraid of a disease. They need to focus on their safety critical work. So being able to test people offshore and in 18 out of 19 cases stand down is incredibly important to maintain operations for us. Um, I'm going to, and I'm sorry for the busy slide, I'm going to 
quickly delve into the one case we have had uh, at Martin Ling the Martin Linge installation. This was March 9th. We had an Equinor employee who came offshore at March 4th after returning from Austria. We added Austria to a high risk, our high-risk list on March 9th, where the person reported to the medic uh, with symptoms, was isolated in cabin, and we did contact tracing, found 35 close contacts, including most of the management team. This was challenging. Um, POB at the time was 776, including two float hotels, because it was a cold platform undergoing construction. So we tested the individual. We flew the test to a hospital by a SAR helicopter. It took two days to get the results, which was positive. So then we medevaced the index case and one more contact. Uh, for the whole duration of this, our incident management team was mobilized and still things were still quite in flux. This was when it was quite new. Uh, so we decided to demobilize everyone, not quarantine, non-essential staff. Uh, that was 650 people. We also returned the flotel onshore. Uh, we did further testing of six close contacts with symptoms, uh, who developed symptoms. They turned out to be negative. So now the entire installation has been sanitized. The flotel has been sanitized. And two weeks after the evacuation, we've started remobilizing. Principles are the same. Isolate, quarantine close contacts, maintain safety. This is crucial then demobilize your non-essentials and regain control to remobilize. It's a good way to manage fear. It's a good way to manage operations. Um, I'll quickly go into this bow tie model we created as well. On the left side, you can see your likelihood reducing measures. On the right hand side, you can see your consequence reducing measures, where the index event is one person infected at an offshore installation. So, First, you need your public medical infrastructure and your local government to reduce the likelihood or the prevalence of disease in your population. You need to have a sick leave policy so that people who are sick don't actually show up to work. Travel restrictions to reduce the likelihood of some of your employees being becoming sick or infected. Employees need to be aware. You need to have a travel contact quarantine policy so that people don't go to work. And access control is a final barrier, but it's not a very good one. It's hard to screen for infection. To prevent further cases, you have your social distancing and sanitation measures. You have your identification and quarantining of close contacts. And to reduce the disturbance of operations, we rely on employee confidence. It's really important to us that our people are safe and feel safe. So we collaborate with the authorities to have people tested, to have the resources we need. And we have a robust company, so we haven't had large disruptions to our operations yet, thankfully, subject to change. Um, thank you, Johanna. I, I will leave over to the next speaker now. Great. Um, it's really, really interesting um, and, and very impressive uh, to see the level of mobilization and, and the depth of knowledge that you're deploying. Um, Really liked your mention of, of collaboration and sharing. It's something the industry is good at. Um, and, and really liked some of the transparency in, in showing where, you know, things hadn't worked out um, in the past and that you're willing to share that. I think that's really, really, really important. That's how we learn. Um, liked your shift of vocabulary, not using the word incident, um, but event and novel, but not unknown. 
uh, you know, it's true, the industry has been managing infectious diseases uh, for over 40 years and, and, and has incredible knowledge through medical officers like yourself. Um, really interesting to see your point about under-reporting of, of symptoms and think this is something we really need to keep uh, well within our sights. It's good to see companies, so many companies, uh, being really proactive um, in how they're going to protect uh, their employees at the same time. Uh, we're in the middle of an oil price crisis as well. So there are a lot of incentives, I think, for underreporting. Um, it's also interesting from a mental health point of view, the kind of stresses that people are putting themselves under. So one, one I think, to watch really, really carefully. Um, and and, and your, your message about confidence and reducing fear, I think, is a, is a really important one. Um, just before we, we uh, hand over to Mark, um, I'd like to take a question from the audience uh, for you, which is, um, you know, how do you, so you said test, 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 you're doing a lot of testing. So a member of the audience wants to know how you acquired test kits. Um, collaboration with the authorities and local laboratories at the hospitals we usually uh, send our patients to. And they've been very gracious with us. Um, Norwegian testing criteria aren't, they don't normally include uh, our population. Yes. But the consequence of a confirmed case offshore, we've been, we managed to communicate with the hospitals and um, have achieved testing capability to a certain extent. Not necessarily as many as we would like, but testing is short to come by at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a major issue and there's some divergence as well amongst the scientists as to the role that testing uh, can play. Um, so let me, let me hand over to, uh, to Mark, um, who's got a question for you. Um, and then Mark, I'll let you uh, move straight into your, your presentation, um, if that's okay with you. Yeah, thanks. No, that's fine. Thanks very much, Frederick. So my question was about repatriation of people who are where you'd consider Medifac. And say, for example, you're, uh, you know, you're operating a facility in the Norwegian sector, but uh, an infected worker was not from Norway, i.e. for example, they're a contractor worker, and uh, you contemplate Medivac, are they, would they be medivac back to a Norwegian, sorry, the Nor Norway or their their country of origin? For example, if it's from elsewhere in the in the uh, North Sea, uh, we've actually had that issue come up not for infected but for suspected contacts. Um, yeah, it's a challenging issue that you kind of have to manage by case on case by case basis, depending on where that person is to be repatriated. Um, my medical instinct, if they are close contacts, is to quarantine them in a hotel on arrival to shore. Uh, so you can be sure of the quality of the medical services and take good care of your employees. But this is done case by case, really. Uh, hard to find the proper guiding principle other than safety. Very, very good. Thank you very much, Frederick. So, Mark? I've oh. repatriated individuals. Oh, over to you, Mark. Um, presentation yeah no problem right let's far away i just have to uh, far up my screen just hold on for a second so i'll be talking about a covid19 bow tie and this is a bow tie that visualizes your role in the pandemic so in uh, uh, we just heard the word collaboration several times and in Whilst I'm presenting this today, this is really on behalf of a group of individuals who over the last couple of weeks have developed this bow tie and a supporting document. And 
those individuals that are listed there, so the ABS group, Martin Johns, BP, uh, Ross of Hutech, and Charles Cowley of the Centre for Chemical Process Safety. And uh, those individuals are really bow tie specialists rather than medics. So what you'll find in the next set of slides is uh, an overview of what that bow tie contains, also how it was developed, and also a bit of the reason why it was developed as well. So moving on to the next uh, slide. So those that don't know, there is actually an industry source that covers uh, bow ties in risk management. So that was published uh, a couple of years ago by the Centre for Chemical Process Safety and the Indian Institute, published in September 2018. It was all VGL and also with the support of CGE Risk as well. But that work was done collaboratively under the uh, direction of around 20 risk specialists uh, from USA through to Europe as far away as India as well. The particular benefit of this piece of work is that it is an industry good practice consensus guide. It clarifies both terminology, gives you guidance on how to lay them out, illustrates practical uses, covers lots of do's and don'ts, hints, tips. It also introduces the concept of water and also human factors or behavior ties. And in a way, the reason why that was developed was to try and consolidate industry knowledge, which hitherto had been associated with particular software products and particular organizations that had expertise in developing bow ties. And of course, some companies had used extensively in the risk management processes. So as well as the uh, core team of 20 people, there was also around 30 proactive stakeholders that uh, did in that work. This presentation, I'll keep referring to that graphic on the right-hand side, which is the place where you can freely access the bow tie developed by that group that was uh, listed on the first slide. So uh, there's a web address in the bottom right-hand corner, and uh, on that web address, which is a bit like EI's page, the Energy Institute's page for its members about COVID-19, there is actually a, a link to a technical resource so you have to read a blog and then at the end of that there is a link to the technical resource so that web address will appear on other pages as well so the reason why we generated this bow tie was that there were some bow ties and circulate that weren't aligned to the ccps and EI guidance so maybe some of the threats are in the wrong place or some, some gave a full security as they contained too many barriers in inverted commas but some of those weren't really barriers because they don't stop an accident trajectory so commonly and hitherto bow ties have been associated with representing uh, prevention mitigation measures in particular for major accidents but they could also be things like work at height on the safety side and there's a lot of experience in in uh, laying out those bow ties, but the guide promotes consistency. But probably until recently, there hasn't been a, a bow ties for uh, uh, th uh, for things like COVID-19. So a subset of the members of that CCPS stroke EI project team uh, 
agree to develop a consensus bow tie. So a group decision on what that bow tie should contain, a uh, decision on how it should be laid out, and also the centre bit about what the uh, uh, what the uh, hazard and the top event are using bow tie terminology, and also what the threats are and the consequences. Okay. So there's the web address again, and there is also a, a link to that site from uh, CCPS as well, from their own website. So moving on to the principles embodied in this bow tie. So the first thing is, rather oddly, there's no new advice. So what I mean by that is there's no new medical advice. Uh, anything that's listed on the bow tie has come from either the UK government or the Centre for Disease Control. Now, if you say, well, I'm not in uh, USA or UK, what you should do is in the context of your own government and health institutions. So think about what they're saying and whether it aligns to this bow tie. If something is different, then the, the reality is you need to apply your local requirements. So the odd thing in this uh, uh, bow tie is that the top event in the centre of that diagram, that red blob, uh, focuses on an individual. So so whether it's someone at work or someone at home or someone who might ordinarily go to work who's currently at home or a bit like Frederick says, someone on an offshore installation, it focuses on the individual and the top event is that individual being infected by the virus. So the common thing with bow ties and how they're laid out is on the left-hand side, you identify threats and on the right-hand side, you identify consequences. And on those uh, threat lines or consequence lines, you'll see uh, this will be expanded into further detail in the subsequent slide. So where you see plus or minus, there's a way of expanding the level of detail there. But the key thing to note on that uh, summary is that there are only two threat lines on the left-hand side and three consequences identified on the right-hand side one of which is the death of the individual. That's the ultimate consequence of someone being infected. And uh, the alternative is death of people that you transfer the uh, virus to. Or there's another effect, which kind of links to mental health about the effects of protracted lockdown. So we'll look at some of those uh, elements in a bit more detail. One of the points to keep making that I need to keep making is look at that website because you can access the document freely that contains far more information and explains more about how the, docu the document and the bow tie itself have been constructed. So looking at prevention barriers, so they're located on the left hand side. So they stop the two threats that are listed leading to the uh, top event. That's the person being infected by the virus. But as you'll see with this, uh, there's actually only two threats. And one is about airborne, airborne transfer of the virus. And the other one's about contact with infected surfaces. And you'll see that the barriers, uh, each barrier tries to stop the progress of that threat leading to the top event. Normally, we call that an accident tra tra trajectory. Right. And where you see those plus signs, there's additional detail that underpins those barriers, the strength of those barriers or challenges to those barriers. And we'll look at some more about that in a moment on a subsequent slide.
So left hand side about preventing the progress of the virus and picking on one of those barriers in particular, which is highlighted there and just expanding it out a little bit. So the barrier is about self-isolation. I stay at home and avoid all contacts and gatherings. And if you look at the, uh, the, the additional detail here, what you'll find is there's two degradation factors and uh, two pathways with controls on them. They're not called barriers because they can't stop the, the progress of the uh, threats to the central, oh, hello, uh, uh, to the top event, hold on. And uh, here there are only controls listed. Sorry, excuse me, my uh, screens are doing something. So moving on to the right-hand side of the bow tie, uh, the barriers here stop the individual either leading to their own death, the death of other people infected by that individual, so they're the consequences on the right-hand side, or to, to find, uh, or, or the other consequence listed is a protracted lockdown. Uh, note here again, you can break this out into further additional detail in barrier, barrier degradation pathways, and these aren't shown for the right-hand side. So onto the last slide here, that's actually a miniature view of what the whole bow tie looks like. Clearly, you need to look at the, the source document to actually look at that in detail and study it for yourself and zoom in on all the different areas, looking at the threats, the, uh, the degradation factors and the controls ultimately leading to the consequences. So what stops the threats ultimately leading to the top event and then onto those particular consequences listed. So a version of the bow tie was published on the 31st of March and currently some industry feedback has been rationalised with, with the intent to issue a new version of that bow tie uh, responding to that feedback in the next few days. So the working group has actually discussed that bow tie and some of that feedback with a view to updating the bow tie and the document that surrounds the bow tie as well, which is available from EI or CCPS. So we do intend to revise the uh, bow tie again if there's any further feedback, maybe not every week, but uh, less frequently than that. And we're also thinking about whether there's a uh, benefit in developing an exemplar bow tie for an offshore installation manager, or maybe uh, one a bit like uh, Frederick showed, but probably using this type type of structure for an organization. So one uh, other point of credit, as well as the people listed here on the last slide, uh, just to note that the bow ties in the document were developed using uh, ABS's thesis software. Other software can actually be used to develop that uh, bow ties as well. So the final thing from me is again about collaboration, just to say thanks to the contributors uh, Mark Manton, Martin Johnson, Rob Miles, and Charles Cowley. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Mark, and a really interesting uh, presentation. I guess a sign of our times. We're all working from home, so I know there was a bit of a lag there um, with the uh, with the internet. Um, but I think the the slides oh, okay. helped. Yeah. Um, so thank thank you very much. Um, uh, Mark and, and really congratulations to the Energy Institute and CCPS, um, you know, for responding so quickly to this uh, 
to this specific need in the in the industry. It means we don't all have to go around reinventing the wheel and creating our own our own bow ties yeah. all over the world. And quite a few of the uh, the audience were asking, can they have copies? Um, yeah. you know, yeah. of, of your bow ties. So um, I hope everybody captured the link. If not, it will be shared with you. Um, and we'll make sure that there's an easy way for you to uh, to get access to the to the bow tie. And okay. as Mark said, it'll evolve um, very very regularly. Um, we have, I'm just going to capture a couple of questions, um, you know, hot hot off the feed before um, we go to our last speaker, Riam Johnson. Um, one is about the protocol for land seismic operations um, uh, during this uh, this period. Francesca, could I ask you to answer that question? Yes, thanks, Joanna. Uh, and thanks for the presenters to bring these uh, points. Uh, the, what we mentioned is that uh, we know that there is the risk of transmission. It's absolutely clear that people need to be working far from each other. Social distancing is still the main measures we have in the absence of pharmaceutical intervention. So what we absolutely recommended is the same uh, recommendations that there are, for example, uh, on the offshore is to ensure that people are at least three feet or a meter from each other. And if anything is below this distance, then personal protective equipment need to be weared. Um, again, companies adopted different types of measures uh, to reduce the risk of uh, transmission. And I think Frederick made quite clear the fact that, uh, you know, communal spaces are uh, are not used, that, uh, you know, there is no buffet available. So every location in which staff uh, is close to each other need to be considered. Uh, of course, offshore locations are more at risk because of the need to transport the patient from an oil rig to, to an hospital. But any location uh, where the staff can get in, in contact with each other or can uh, get close to someone else need to be considered and uh, barriers need to be put uh, in place. So education to staff um, about uh, measures is essential. Uh, active screening about uh, symptoms or any uh, other um, or fever. Um, and then workplace policies about distancing. And if uh, distance cannot be ensured, then personal protective equipment. Thank you, Francesca. Um, we'll go now to our last speaker, to Riam Johnson, who's the, the Chief HSE Officer for, uh, for NOV. Over to you, Riam. All the, all the speakers that went ahead of me. Um, I'm batting cleanup here and going last. So many of the guidelines or preventative measures that um, I would have stated already uh, have been stated at this point. So good teamwork there and collaboration. <laughs> um, I, I want to further drive the point home uh, that it is important to recognize uh, that these are difficult times. Um, I'm, I'm really, it's really refreshing to hear um, the speakers talking about collaboration so much because it, it is important that we all pull together uh, to make it through. Uh, that is uh, not just, I mean, that's something that we're preaching uh, at NOV uh, among all of our different you know, business units and business segments, which I'm sure there's a lot of large companies or members of large companies listening to this struggling with kind of the same thing. But um, it's, it's, it's really quite nice to see uh, people pulling together on this because we all are affected by it, not just us as employees or people of part of the industry, but um, but really our families and our communities, uh, like like one of the earlier speakers had, had said. Um, we are also what, what we have in common, obviously, on with this industry, we're all fighting the same two front war 
right, with the struggling oil prices uh, and, and balancing and keeping our folks happy, uh, or not happy, excuse me, healthy, <laughs> hopefully happy. <laughs> uh, but, but what that further says is that we are, uh, we're an essential industry, we perform a very important work. Um, so it's important to make sure that um, the workforce has what they need uh, in order to be productive and safe. Uh, Frederick, you really uh, hit the nail on the head there about um, making sure that uh, we're alleviating what we can of fears uh, so that people can focus on the tasks they already do day to day uh, that, that are um, uh, that are risky, right? Uh, and making sure that they're focused on on their message uh, and, and on their work. Um, so um, it, it's again, it's great to see the whole the whole industry come together on this. So just a few things on uh, what what NOV is doing. So us as a as a service and uh, equipment manufacturer. So uh, we're looking out for people similarly to Frederick saying that you're looking out for people, you know, out on the rigs. Uh, we have shops and warehouses uh, so we have employees that are there obviously we have people in in offices as well um, and we also send some of our people out to customer sites uh, to service uh, to service the customers um, so um, strategizing is a very big thing uh, one of the things that we're doing obviously so I've heard it from multiple other people talking about um, implementing and standing up these regional crisis teams um, so we've you know done that across the board uh, we make sure we have you know um, the right people on there from HSE and HR security and, and folks throughout the operations so that all all voices are, are heard and, and strategized together there especially on a regional level where um, I think somebody said earlier things are changing day to day. Um, having a legal representative on, on each of those teams as well is very effective, staying on top of, you know, keeping us all out of trouble essentially, but but making sure that we can still we can still move forward and go on. Um, and, and tracking trends uh, as well and seeing um, you know uh, some of what I think Francesca you were saying about um, uh, like the, the trending of, of the cases that are going up. Same thing with you Frederick and your um, in your case study uh, of seeing of, okay, what was the date of when these cases happened? Uh, what measures are we putting in place? Seeing how well these are um, are being adopted and, and how effective they are. Um, so uh, we're, we're doing the same thing at NOV as well. And, and in doing so, we're aligning our efforts, you know, across sites, um, across employees that are still traveling uh, because they need to, to be able to support, you know, customers that rigs are still uh, operating. Um, and so, and we're also staying on top of customer requirements. Um, so, so as customers are, you know, protecting their sites, obviously we're protecting ours as well, uh, as far as having visitors on site, making sure we're, we're screening people properly, um, and understanding what their, uh, I guess what their travel history is, what could they have been exposed and that kind of thing. And, and making sure we have barriers are in place to where we're not allowing that inside. Um, one of the biggest things we're doing across uh, NOV is, is a huge stance on communicating uh, across the board. Uh, we created an internal coronavirus website. Um, it's chocked full of so much information from posters and 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 memos and flyers because um, you know another thing we're doing is sending out emails uh, globally as far as on a regional level. But as we all know, that only uh, reaches people who have email, who have computer access. So it's really um, a huge movement for all of us that have access to that to make sure that same message is reached to the, the shop floor as well. So again, we have all this printable information. That's what we utilize in toolbox talks. Um, those toolbox talks are, are different now. Uh, they're not a, a big room now. They're kind of 
in smaller groups um, so that the message is still uh, shared and is still received, um, but in a safe manner. Um, so that kind of segues into, uh, again, same thing you were saying, uh, Frederick, about minimizing the number of people in the same place at the same time. Uh, so implementing work from home measures. Um, I don't know about other folks out there, but I've actually found myself to be a lot more productive uh, working from home and keeping in contact with people using technology to connect. Um, we've staggered um, and uh, we've implemented staggered and rotational work shifts in the shops, staggered um, uh, staggered uh, breaks and lunches, uh, mandatory hand washing breaks. Um, we've, we've limited travel to just um, absolutely required for, for customer um, customer needs. Um, and uh, we the, the thing that uh, Frederick, I really took away from your um, measures of your of your case study was um, I noticed that there were multiple days that went by with no cases before you even um, started returning back to normal. Um, so some, that's a message that we're delivering as well at NOV is continue these measures, even if you were seeing, you know, in whatever country or region that you're in, even if you're seeing these improvements, we can't let off the gas pedal. We got to keep going and implementing these same measures. Um, but but otherwise, we're, we're making sure we send positive messaging out to people, really you know, praising them for the good work that they're doing. Um, uh, to 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 implement social distancing, um, you know, the no handshakes kind of a wave thing that Michael Gaines was talking about, and my husband says high five wireless. Uh, so that's kind of you know greeting each other in a kind of a playful way. There you go. <laughs> Um, and so very good. And then uh, frequent and thorough hand washes as well. Um, but anyway, so those are kind of general um, measures that I think a lot of people are taking um, across the board. Um, but uh, uh, just the same message of like working together, I think, is, is a huge thing that we're driving across uh, across the board. We actually had um, uh, some of our positive messaging. We, this video cast, uh, Michael Gaines is, is our guy in NOV. Uh, and so uh, we've done some video podcasts as well with uh, Clay, our CEO, making sure that the workforce hears from leadership, right? And that we're all in this together. Uh, we just recently did a panel discussion uh, on our leadership team between uh, our chief administrative officer, uh, Bonnie, and then our chief information officer, Alex, and myself, uh, just to make sure we're addressing folks as well. And they can hear from us, they hear our tone, they hear that we're all in it together. I think it's a very important message to to drive, and and it's great to see the whole industry pull together to to drive that same message. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Rayum. A really, really strong collaboration and communication uh, you know, message there. So we've got all, all our speakers up online um, now, um, and getting quite a lot of interest in in the questions about the uh, the bow tie. Um, methods that, that you've all referred to in different ways and, and the idea, we've been talking about collaboration and sharing amongst ourselves, but um, uh, thoughts coming in about using the bow ties to collaborate externally and to share externally. So, you know, the kind of potential for the bow tie to be used by, by the public um, to be able to risk assess their own, their own situation. I wonder who would like to take that question and, and have a go at it, Francesca or maybe Frederick? Do you want to? Well, maybe, I maybe think Mark, you're the bow tie expert. Your internet's a little bit choppy, unfortunately. Let's yeah, see know, if we can hear you properly. The, the view of our working group is that it'd be very desirable if, if the public, or really actually governments, promoted the use of a bow tie as a 
visual aid to help people understand what what are the real barriers what are they kind of like things that challenge the barriers and how all of that stuff fits together so if governments or the world health organization would like to adopt the bow tie methodology and use that, that example we'd be delighted great and francesca you've got you've got uh you know, a, a, an arm and a leg and in all sorts of different pots and different different sectors. What do you think the potential is there for the, the bow tie to be have more broader uptake? Absolutely. I think uh, it's a great initiative. We have uh, actually, I got uh, the, the bow tie that Mark was presenting, the day that was published from uh, one of my colleagues. Actually, like, we got it from one of my clients. So I think it's oh. already circulating out there. And we know that the oil and gas sector uh, is, uh, you know, at the forefront on a lot of uh, health and safety process and procedures. So for me, there are a lot of possibilities for using it more uh, more widely. And uh, considering Mark gave us the issues that they are going to update it, we will make yeah. sure that uh, we get to you a lot of other comments from other industries. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, so we um, we've just to move on to a kind of medical question and i'm going to i'm going to bounce this one over to you frederick which is it's come in in a couple of different forms but it's to do with identification and, and contact tracing um, could you speak to that for for a little bit please certainly um, i'd just like to start by saying that confidence trust um, the feeling of safety among our employees is vital it's 100% vital to managing this um, there are a lot of countries that have introduced very strict public screening uh, or tracking even by cell phone, uh, temperature testing, things like that. Uh, we prefer to have faith in our employees that when they are sick, they will actually tell us. So we need to have collaboration. We need to have the confidence of our employees. And that's also the principle we use for identifying cases, identifying close contacts. Um, when someone gets sick offshore right now uh, on any of our installations, they are well instructed to go straight to your cabin. Regardless, if you get a fever, if you feel a little bit cold, if you have a runny nose, you go to your cabin. And we trust people to do this, and they are doing it. Um, and then to identify, is this a high probability, a medium probability, or a low probability case, we, we have the nurse or medic interview the patient uh, with the doctor by, uh, on the phone often. And we look for classic symptoms of COVID, if they have one or more classic symptoms of COVID, and the contact history or travel history that makes it more probable, they are a high likelihood. If they don't have the contact history, but they have maybe one medium or one classic symptoms, they're the medium. And if they only have a runny nose, and we know there is a bit of uncertainty to this, but people get runny noses offshore as well. We can't test every single person with a runny nose. So then we just isolate them. Um, so that, that's how we do it. And that, that's the same principle for, for contact tracing as well. We have a set of criteria that's uh, it's similar across the world for the WHO, the CDC, the ECDC, the Norwegian National Institute of Public Health. They all define close contacts in roughly the same way. We've modified it a little bit for offshore so that we include people in the same helicopter flights, things like that. Uh, but we do it through an interview. Uh, and then we identify them, we keep track of them, and we start monitoring them, talking to them. So a very rigorous process. Uh, thank you, Frederick. And I think we're, we're going to head into the wrap now, as it's called, in live casting terms. Um, I'm just going to bounce um, uh, a last question um, over to, uh, uh, to Rium. 
um, to do with uh, the, you talked about alignment and I suppose I'm interested in your, you know, your operations and, and your R&D perspective. You've suddenly been plunged into this world of, of, of HSE and plunged into the biggest crisis you know, the world has known uh, for a very, very long time. And I just wondered um, if you have any sense of how this might change uh, when you go back into an operations role or into an R&D role, you know, how do you think this experience is going to change your perspective um, on how we better integrate HSE practices uh, into how we're running our companies? I think, uh, well, in the U.S. anyway, we're hearing a lot of people talking about PPE. And I think for the safety nerds out there, they're like, wow, people actually know what PPE is now, <laughs> you know, for the, for the wider audience. So this is definitely... Uh, something that people are talking about all the time. Uh, uh, in addition to just, just safety uh, of, of that being more integrated into operations, I think even just um, the regional crisis communications teams working cross-function uh, is something that hasn't been, uh, like people haven't really leaned on it so much, right? You have a question, you go to HR, you have a question, you go to HSE. Um, but having these teams that are collaborating together uh, has been quite powerful. Uh, and definitely anybody who knows me knows I'm very kumbaya. Uh, and so seeing everybody kind of coming together and 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 playing upon each other's strengths and knowing, you know, this is this is your lane, this is your lane, but together we'll make that decision based on all those those uh, input, it's, it's huge. and. Um, I really do see that coming out of this, um, seeing the, the success that comes out of all of us working together that way is going to continue in that momentum moving forward. Um, because you're through all of this, we, we what do they always say? Um, your friend is uh, when you have a common enemy, right? The friend of your enemy right. is your friend, right? Um, so the, we all have the shared enemy uh, with COVID-19. Um, and when you all come together to face that same thing, you really build relationships and build rapport and respect among each other. Um, and you fight with each other and for each other. Um, so I think yeah. that it's going to definitely, uh, yeah, hashtag in this Thank together. You. Very good to hear. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I think that's the huge takeaway is collaboration. And, you know, we've shown that uh, when the scale and the urgency of the challenges, uh, we can rise to them. Um, and there are plenty of other challenges the industry is facing. So maybe this will make us stronger to collaborate facing all the other challenges that we have. So thanks a million, everybody. Absolutely fantastic. I love this. Can I do the heart sign? <laughs> Thank you, everyone, very much. Um, and I think that uh, we're going to be taken off camera, Muppet Show style. Thank you very much, everybody. And Thank be in you. touch soon. Thank you. Take care. That was Joanna Dunlop leading a conversation on oil and gas's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. We plan to bring you more live content on SPE platforms, so make sure to follow the Society of Petroleum Engineers on social to keep up with those announcements. And to stay connected with us, use the hashtag SPE Podcast. Looking for the latest episodes? Search SPE Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Please leave reviews. We appreciate the five stars and hearing your feedback. You can find us online at spe.org slash podcast. Special thanks to this episode's moderator, Joanna Dunlop, and for the panelists for their insights. I'm Jason Notoris, and thanks for listening. This 
SPE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.